fitting hymn. What a fitting prayer. What a fitting ask. Would you be our vision? Would you be the... What we see, Lord, and how we see everything in the world. May we see you and may we see everything by you. Lord, we have a a cosmic grace today to be able to gather together and to have your word in our language. To be able to hear who you are, what you're like, what you've done. To rescue men from every single tribe, tongue, nation, people, group, language by the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we would honor Him today. We would lift high His name above every other name. And we would offer Him today. We would remind ourselves of Him today. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask You to that end that You would come. Come among us. Lift us up, Lord, that we might behold Christ that we might treasure Him above every treasure that this world has to offer, and therefore that we might be radical in our proclamation of Him. Would you take these next few moments, Lord, and build us up? We ask it in His name and for His sake. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 13. One of my favorite things to do when I go to visit my parents, or uh, I don't have uh, I don't have grandparents anymore. I think all of them are gone. But um, I do. Whenever I would get to go see them, one of my favorite things to do is to go look at their picture walls. Particularly, you can make fun of me if you want to. I wanted to see my grandfathers. I love to see pictures of my grandfathers when they were just a scotch younger than me. Right when my when my grandfather on my mother's side who was like my big brother big gloriously good looking played professional football uh i've got a picture of him standing uh with the um with some i've never been to washington dc but it's a very famous building in the background and he's standing with curly lambo as the coach and the and the 40 or the um what they used to be the uh redskins now it's just the washington football team right and he's standing there in all of his glory and his shoulder pads. And I, I love to see that. I love to see my grandfather, my other grandfather, my, on my dad's side in his Navy outfit, looking like he could straight up conquer the world. And I love to see where I've come from. And I love to see a snapshot of that. This is where I come from. And I also love to think about measuring myself by them. Does that make sense? Like when you see them in their old black and white photos and you go, man, that's a stud, a super stud. What would he, if he knew me, what would he, if if he were alive today and could see where I am, could see what I'm doing, could see what I love, could see what I'm sacrificing for, could see what I'm wasting, could see all these things. Would Would he look at me, would he observe me and say, you're cutting my same cloth and I'm proud? Or would he say, what the heck happened to you, man? Like, I love to... I love to look back and see a snapshot and, and start to try and interpret my life in light of that, which is basically what we do every Sunday, coming to an ancient document that God gave us by inspiration of His Spirit, 
and we see the snapshot of our spiritual forebears, those who were the first to hope in Christ, those who were the first to lay down their lives to preach Him to the nations. And we look and we see how fantastically studly they were. And we say, what would they say if they were in our church, if they came today, if the Apostle Paul walked in as a visitor? Would he say, man, well done, you're cutting my same cloth. Would he say, what the heck are you guys doing? This is a good endeavor for us to look back at a snapshot and to interpret ourselves in light of it. So you're in Acts chapter 13. Let me give you a little bit of context to this this moment in the story of the book of Acts. Up until this point, God's purposes in the world to exalt His Son Jesus Christ have been centered in Jerusalem. The church is being built up there. It's, it's being sent out from there, but it's all Jerusalem. There's satellite sort of works, but it's all about Jerusalem. Now in chapter 13, there's going to be a new church in a new area. It's going to be Antioch. We've already sort of uh, had a little bit of exposure to them, but now they're going to take center stage. And what they're going to be doing is not endeavoring to build the first mega church of Antioch, but they're going to be endeavoring to make sure that everyone that they know and everyone in the world at their time could be able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, what God in Christ has done to reconcile sinners to himself. And they're going to start to lay down their lives and lay down their wealth and lay down everything they have to the end that they could preach Christ to the nations. And we're going to see the very beginnings of that. We're going to see a snapshot of our forebears in the mission of Christ, the great co-mission of Jesus. And so I have four maybe things that I want you to observe from this that I think are really fantastic. First off, in, in chapter 13, verse 1, if you write in your Bibles, write out beside verse 1, unity. Write out beside verse 1, unity. Is God gracious to give us a good, timely word? Listen to this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Two types of giftings there. Prophets and teachers. And then we're told a list of names. And we might not... Uh, understand too much about it, but I want to dwell on these because there's some there's some gold here. Barnabas, who we know. Simeon, who we do not know, but Luke gives us this sort of introduction that uh, that Simeon, who was called Niger, that was his nickname. Barnabas, by the way, was his name Joseph? I think his name is Joseph, and they nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So it's central to his character that he's an encourager. And so they, they say, we're not calling you Joseph anymore. You're just the encourager. Um, it's the same thing with Simeon. Uh, Luke tells us, yeah, there was a guy named Simeon who was called Niger. Now, some of you have a textual note that gives you the meaning of the word Niger. The meaning of the word Niger is black. So this is a, this is a black man. And Luke makes no further comment. He just states it. There are all of these believers together in the body of Christ, prophets and teachers, and he's going to list some of them, Barnabas and Simeon, who is called Niger. So you've got um, so desperately early on in the church, you've got, uh, I don't want to say white, because uh, I don't know if you would count Jews as white. You'd have non-white and black together uh, in the same body, and there's no comment about how that happened. 
Where do we get this racial unity, something that's never been seen before? Where do we get that? Well, it's a Christian ideal. And I love that Luke doesn't even say how it was gotten. He just describes it as an already thing. They're just together because they both know Christ. And He is sufficient to overcome anything that segregates anybody. It's not just race, though. Watch this. Lucius of Cyrene, that's, that's North Africa. So you have, it's bookended by Jews, by Barnabas, uh, who was a Levite, Saul, who was a, um, who was a Pharisee. And in the middle, you have Simeon, who uh, what Luke tells us was a black man, Lucius of Cyrene, so North Africa. And then watch this. This is fantastic, especially in light of uh, last, last week's sermon on Herod. A guy who killed James, a guy who tried to kill Peter, a guy who um, persecuted the church. There's a guy here named Manaen who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, just to put this in perspective, I don't know if you're a Republican or, or a Democrat, but take like the most vilified Democrat and the most vilified Republican, and wherever your leanings lie, if you say despise the Clintons, and somebody came in and said, I grew up best buddies with Bill Clinton, right? And he loves Jesus. Like, Paul, or God, in his great mercy through Christ, takes this guy named Manaean, who's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and he puts him in the same body of Christ as Saul the Pharisee. Now, just some, some background, if you would um, humor me. In Israel at this time, you had, um, well, prior to the, to the days of Christ, during what we call the 400 years of silence, God granted um, Greece to come in uh, under Alexander the Great and conquer Israel. And then later he granted the Romans to come in and conquer Israel. But when the Greeks came in, they infiltrated Jewish culture with Greek culture. And so they put, um, they put a gymnasium in downtown Jerusalem as, a, um, as an example. Uh, gumnas, our, our idea of gymnasium, means naked. The Jews would go... Uh, or the, the Greeks, rather, would go into the, the gumnos, into the gym, and they would exercise naked. And the Jews that were growing up there, some of the younger kids who were starting to speak Greek and starting to adopt some of that culture, they said, we want to go there too. All our friends are going there. And so they started to go, uh, try not to imagine this, but go naked into the gym. But as Jews, they have a, they have a defining characteristic that exposes them as Jews, right? Circumcision. And so uh, there are very early accounts during this Hellenism of, uh, of Israel at the time where there were Jewish men having cert cosmetic surgeries to hide the marks of circumcision, to hide the, the mark of their covenant before God, that they're Jewish people, that they're, that they're marked out as God's people. And so there's this, there's this vast influx of culture that's disturbing the Jews of the time. This is the point. You had all of these different sects of Judaism that we read about in the Gospels that are responding in various ways to cultural encroachment. You have Sadducees that say, hey, we can't, we can't beat them, so let's join them. We'll just give away everything they don't like. We'll still kind of hold on to some stuff and we'll be in power. And so during the life of Christ, the Sadducees kind of ran the show in Jerusalem. You have the Essenes. They were more of the monks. Right, the people who said we can't have anything to do with this, and so they would move into the wilderness. We don't want to, we don't want anything to do with it. So they would move away. But you also had a third group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees' idea, their response to Greek and Roman encroachment to Jewish culture was we're not going anywhere and we're not giving an inch. 
So we're going to stay public. We're going to serve in public. We're going to engage the culture. And we're not going to bow at all. That's Paul, who was the Pharisee of Pharisees, the greatest Pharisee that we've ever known. And he's now worshiping Christ alongside Herod's best friend. Behold the comedy of God. And God just comes in and He puts them together without any explanation of how it happened. Paul says this uh, in in the book of Ephesians. He says, Be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. Do you know what he does not say? Be diligent to go attain unity of the Spirit. It's already ours in Christ. You'll notice there's no conference where we talk about racial issues. There's no conference. There's no legislation from the state. There's none of that. There's just Christ, and He is enough. Um, Some of you old-timers remember um, the... Um, the first, I don't know if it's the first, but it was a very early in the 70s, the Coke commercial, where it's every race and every tribe and every tongue, and we're all standing singing this song about, um, about bringing the world together. And how are they going to do that? I'll buy you a Coke, because it's the real thing. You should, you should go look that up. Um, we have all of these ideals about how we could, as humans, who are consistently... In every culture divided by, there's animosity, whether it's race or whether it's culture, whether it's location, whether it's color, whether it's uh, education. There's all of these things that divide us and fragment us as human beings. And all of us look at that and say, that's a great problem and we want to solve it. But nobody knows how. Nobody knows how. And the only person who has an answer to it is Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners. Okay? Um, there was a very, very famous, I won't say his name, maybe I will say his name, I don't know. Very famous brother in Christ. You guys, many of you have read his books. I've read some of his books. Uh, really appreciate a lot of what he's had to say. Um, but I want to I uh, quote what he, uh, what he said just recently, it's been a week, maybe two. This is what he said very publicly. He's a celebrity pastor. Everybody looks to him for sort of uh, guidance and what does the Bible teach? And he says this about, about race. He says, if you have white skin, it's worth a million dollars over a lifetime. And you have to say, I don't deserve this. I'm the product of and standing on the shoulders of other people who got that through injustice. The Bible says you are involved in injustice even if you didn't actually do it. Can I tell you something? That is a direct contradiction of the way the gospel works. Okay? Um, The scripture is very plain. There is therefore now how much condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No condemnation. Let me ask you something. Is there conviction? Does the Spirit convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Absolutely He does. But condemnation and conviction are vastly different. The Spirit will come and convict you of a particular sin that you did so that you can confess your sin to God and receive full pardon, cleansed from all unrighteousness. That's why the Spirit brings conviction. That's why the Spirit would say, hey, when you did this, it was unbecoming a son or a daughter of God repent, you confess it, and it's gone. 
And you're not asked to pay up. You're not asked to do anything else. Condemnation is satanic and it works like this. It just comes and says, hey, you know what? You're kind of the worst. I can't point to anything in particular that you've done, but I can just, I know it about you. You're just bad. You should feel bad. And now I'm going to start putting all of these things that you must do to get it right. Listen, that kind of preaching can never bring racial harmony or cultural harmony or any other kind of harmony. The only thing that will bring it is a crucified and raised Jesus Christ. Condemnation with no hope of real redemption and real freedom is satanic. When a judge pronounces you guilty, listen to this. When a judge pronounces you guilty, it isn't so that you can repent and get out of punishment. What is a judge doing? He's saying, well, you're guilty, so what's going to happen to you? You're going to jail. You're going to jail. Okay? And so when Christ comes and He preaches not judgment but forgiveness, He does say, this is sin, you need to repent, but He brings mercy with Him. And here's what Christ says to us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. So listen, as we, as we think through and see this snapshot of the early church where it's racially and culturally just a, a bag of mixed nuts, right? And they're all together in Christ. And not a word is spoken about how we got there. It's just assumed this is what Jesus can do when we repent of our own sin and we turn to Him. This is what He can do. So how can you tell if you're hearing condemnation or conviction being preached? If repentance brings forgiveness, then you know it was gospel. If repentance brings commands to pay up, commands to do this or that so that, uh, so that you can make sure and, and they're always moving the finish line, that's not the voice of Christ you are hearing. So the first snapshot, I just want you to see this, is the unity of the body of Christ. Unity from diversity that only Jesus Christ can bring. The second thing I want you to see is there in verse 2, if you write in your Bibles, uh, write the word satisfaction. Write the word satisfaction. Um, we, uh, this week, um, Eli and Timmy and I were talking about um, the idea of satisfaction. Um, and we talked about a guy who, in his heyday, uh, had all the wealth in the world, had all the popularity in the world, had all of the, could sell out crowds and, and all of these things, and everybody thought he was the greatest. And when he, you know, when his guitarist would strike a chord, everybody just lost their mind. And I, I actually pulled it up for Eli so that he could see him sing this song. And he's singing, I can't get no banana. And everybody's screaming, Yeah, this is the best. And he, meanwhile, he's saying, I can't get satisfaction. And yet you've come to me to get it. Like, I'm a Pez dispenser. Like, I can give you what you're longing for. And he kept saying again and again, I, I've got all this stuff, but I can't get satisfaction. Listen, these men are satisfied. The church of Christ is satisfied in the Lord Jesus. Look in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which... I have called them. Luke makes it very plain that it was in the context of worship and fasting 
Okay? In the context of worshiping Christ in the power of the Spirit, worshiping the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit as we're gathered together with our attentions, our affections on Him, being satisfied in Him, that's when mission comes. Okay? A great, um, one of the most important in our generation, one of the most important things that's ever been said about missions is this quote. Missions exist because worship does not. Let me say that again. Missions exists because worship does not. Christ is altogether lovely, altogether uh, worthy of everybody's worship. And anybody who's not giving Him His worship is not giving Christ His due. And so we worship God and we say, Lord, You are altogether lovely and everybody ought to worship You and therefore those that are not, we want to go to them and we want to tell them how great You are. There is a... Um, a story of two. I think I told it recently, but I'm going to tell it to you again because it's worth it. There are a story of two Moravian brothers uh, who heard about some slaves on an island who had no access to the gospel and they had no access to lead. So for, for generations, they're never going to be able to hear about Jesus and they can't just go and say, hey, we want to tell your slaves about Christ because the slave owner wouldn't allow it. And so they devised this glorious scheme to sell themselves as strong-backed slaves so that in slavery, they can share the gospel with the slaves. And their family, what would you do if your son said that? Yeah? Eli says, hey, I, you know, I've got, I could do any number of things, but what I'm going to give my life to, I'm going to sell myself into slavery so that I can bring them the gospel. What do you say? Shaking, I would say, man, I'm proud. I'm proud of I'm proud of that. These guys, their family, they got together and they said, Don't do this thing. Please don't throw your lives away like this. Well they did. And the story goes, they're sailing out of the harbor and everybody's there pleading with them, don't go, don't go. And they lock arms, standing on the on the stern of the ship, they lock arms, and one of them throws his fist in the air and he says, What's the words, Timmy? The lamb that was slain shall have the reward of his, of his suffering. The land that was slain shall have the reward of his suffering. Listen, we go because the land that was slain must have the reward of his suffering and he is worth it. He has bought men from every tribe, tongue, nation, people, language, and he must be praised. So missions exist because worship does not. But let me turn it around and say something that's equally true. Missions exist because worship exists. Meaning, when the church worships Christ, it always overflows into mission. When He is our greatest treasure, our greatest satisfaction, when it is commonplace for us to gather together and sing His praise and drink from His Word and celebrate His body, His broken body and shed blood and we pray over one another and He is all that always spills over to mission. It doesn't go any other way. It always, it always spills over. Satisfaction in Christ always produces multiplication. By the way, that is something that God worked into the very fabric of the universe because it's something that God is. See if you can figure out what I'm going, for, going with here. Uh, John tells us God is what? You know? No. Not God is wrath. 
Not God is big. God is love. God is love. Now think about this. In order to love, you have to have subject and object. Love can't just be in a vacuum. I, I love. Well, what do you love? Who do you love? I don't know. I just love. It doesn't work that way. So God, in His very essence, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune, unity with plurality, is before there was darkness, before there was time, space, continuum. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. I don't know. Before there was any of that, you have the Father eternally loving the Son, the Son eternally loving the Father, the Spirit who is the eternal manifestation of the love between Father and Son. And that divine triune dance spills over in love and pleasure into the creation of the world in order that God can have not created because He was lonely and now He can be fulfilled. Don't think that. It's blasphemy. God created other beings to incorporate into His satisfaction, into His own internal happiness. And so He intends to incorporate you in. Then watch this. As the climax of His creation, He creates man, singular, in His image. Male and female, plural. In the image of God, He created them. So He, can, he makes, in His image, let us make man in our image, and He creates plurality with unity. They're, they're one thing, but they're two things, and they have love with one another. And they're on the same team. And what do they always want to do? Procreate. That, that out of that love, out of that satisfaction, God intends for them to be careful, like God, in love and in satisfaction that that would spill over into reproduction, into, into making others to be incorporated into um, our love and our satisfaction. So God works these things down into the warp and woof of who we are as people, and it's the same within God, it's the same within marriage, and it's the same within the church, that when we love Christ, what do we want to do? We want to invite other people to the feast. You guys got to see this. You guys got to know what it's like to be known. He knows what I did and He loves me and He promises to forgive me and never call it to account. You have to know this. You have to know this. And so we, we give ourselves to incorporate other people in. Think about this. How have we been praying for the pay people? How are we going to start praying for the people that Timmy's going to go by the power of Christ win to the worship of Christ? We do not pray that they would just know Christ and be satisfied. Listen, I've listened to you and I've listened to me and that's not what comes to mind. What comes to mind without any coaching, without any direction, is that we pray that they would be able to worship Christ with us in glory. Now, how sweetly audacious is that? That we would say, we want others to be with us worshiping Christ. What does that assume? It assumes we're going to make it. How do you know you're going to make it, you prideful thing? Well, because you're not making it on your own steam. That's the whole point. He's given it to you, a promise that you're going to make it. And you're going to worship Him. And we want others to worship with us. This is one of the best litmus tests for the love of God within your own heart, within a church? Do they participate in mission? Do they actively go to those who have never heard and cannot hear unless we go to them? Are we a part of that or are we not? Do we love God and are we spilling over or not? Hey, 
Third, in verse 2, I want you to write the word gesture. Write the word gesture. Watch this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So notice, it's the Holy Spirit. They're worshiping God. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, I want you to set apart these two guys to the work to which I have called them. So we know back from Acts chapter 9 that when Christ saved Saul, he told Ananias, you must go and lay hands on him so that he can receive his sight. And he is a chosen instrument of mine and you must, uh, I must show him how much he is to suffer for my name's sake. So God already, past tense, has a calling on this guy's life. But now the Holy Spirit uh, codifies that and he says, set apart uh, for me these men for the work to which I have called them. I've already called them to this work, and so this is what I want you to do. Now, this is our typical view of a gospel endeavor, that we want to do something. We kind of come up with something. We say, okay, this is what we would really like to do. Um, and let, let me say that really quick. I want to remind you of something that Russ preached uh, a, a long time ago about the way mission happens in the book of Acts. There's three ways. God, right here, says, do this work. And so he initiates. There's also a time where Paul says, hey, let's go around and visit the churches, and that's praise. So it can be our initiative, it can be God's initiative, it can also be invitation. Hey, come over here and help us. Okay, so those three things are legit uh, forms of mission or, or um, uh, catalysts for mission. But our typical view is of a gospel endeavor is that we say, okay, we really want to do this thing, and so what we've got to do is we've got to go to God and we've got to convince him that this is a worthwhile deal. And then we've got to overcome his reluctance to, to, to come and bless it. We, we can't do it. We want to do this thing. We don't have the power. And so, God, would you please come with us? And would you please bless us in our endeavors? Make us successful, O oh Lord. Which is like when a dad um, wants to lavish his kids. And so he takes them out to a restaurant. And he says, pick whatever you want. Choose off the menu. And they get out their menu and they maybe they can read. And so they pick something and they say, this is this is what I want. And so they they start to they start to uh, they, they tell the waiter what they want. And as the waiter goes, they start to implore their dad, dad, please, please. We don't have the money to buy the steak. Would you please do it? What is the dad going to say? You're here because of me. I invited you on this. Of course, I'm going to pay. This is my job. This is my work. You are here because I invited you. That's what the Holy Spirit set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, to the work that I have called them to. So this is God's job. This is His job. God's plan for the world is to work to exalt His Son until His glory covers the earth like water does the sea. That's coverage. Think of, your, uh, think of your cell phone maps. That's coverage. To cover the earth like water does the sea. Listen to this from Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, the father, the father talking about the son, Jesus. Look at my servant. Look at him. Whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Who is bring, bringing forth justice to the nations? It's Christ. Now, how does he do it? He does it through the church. 
but it's him that's doing it. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Listen to this. A promise. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established a justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Okay, so listen to me. This is the work that God through His Son and through His Spirit is doing in the world. And we get to be a part of it. But it's not our work. That we gotta, we got to start these things and then ask God to like stop resting and get after blessing us. No, this is what God is doing and we jump in on His side. When we endeavor to take the gospel to neighbors or to the nations, we are endeavoring to do what God has already set His mind to do. Therefore, we do not ask, Lord, will you please bless this endeavor of ours? Do you know what we ask? We ask, Father, may I please ride with you? That's what we ask. Father, I see what you're doing. Will you take me with you? Let me be a part of what you're doing. That's our prayer. That's the gesture, the fundamental gesture of mission is God is moving in this direction and we say, take me with you like a good son that looks at his dad and says, take me with you. Wherever you're going, I want to go. Last thing I want to show you here about mission, this snapshot of what the church looks like and what mission looks like. Write down beside verse 2, write the word severance. Write the word severance. And in verse 2, while they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. That word set apart Um, It is used elsewhere in the New Testament of someone who bears the name of brother. They call themselves a Christian. They say they believe in Christ, but they are walking consistently, unrepentantly in a way that dishonors Christ. This is the word that is used when we put them outside of the fellowship. When we say you're you're no longer to benefit from the normal fellowship of Christ. Doesn't mean we're saying you're not a believer. It means that you can't continue to walk that way and still be in good fellowship with the body of Christ. There's a there's a separation here. So um, so interesting too. While they were worshiping, that word for worship is the is the word that we get our word for liturgy. Our liturgy, the rhythms of worship, the normal rhythms of the body. As we gather together and do and go through our normal rhythms of how we worship Christ, they. Uh, The Holy Spirit says, I want you to set apart. I want you to send out from that the normal worship of the church. And I want you to send out Barnabas and Saul. So when we send off a missionary, we are sending them out of the normal liturgy of the church, the normal worship of the church. Okay, They, They are not going to be able to participate with us every single Sunday. That's part of what it that's part of what it means. Now, they're. There's a very real sense in which it's not a severing because Paul and Barnabas always come back to Antioch and always give a, um, an explanation of what happened and they're, they're held accountable by the church. So they're still part of the church, but they are set aside from the normal rhythms of worship, the normal fellowship within the body. Okay? Uh, it's, a, it's a normal thing for them to... Um, excuse me. It, we are setting them, uh, setting them outside the normal worship of Christ trusting that God will supply them with abnormal means of fellowship, okay? Think of uh, a couple of examples here. The Reese family, um, when they moved into the jungle, they, uh, they're, they're, you know, 
with furlough and with uh, Achilles heels that get slaughtered, um, they, they have spent months, if not years, alone in the jungle without any other believers. Any other believers. They're just in this dark place without a church to gather, without elders to be right there to say, hey, keep it up, we're praying for you, laying hands on you, without uh, somebody to offer and say, hey, uh, remember Christ, the, the night in which he was betrayed, he broke bread after giving thanks. He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this and remember. They don't get to do that. They don't get the normal soul benefits that we get to gather together. They're not, they're not experiencing that. But what they are experiencing is the abnormal, the extra normal fellowship of Christ. There was a missionary named John Patton or Payton. I don't know how to say it. But he went to the New Hebrides, um, which is somewhere in the South Pacific. Um, he was a Scotsman, and he went there to win the cannibals to Christ. And everybody said, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And his response is, you're going to be eaten by worms. What's the difference? I don't care. If I can make much of Jesus, I'm going. And so he went. And he went with his wife, and he went with, I think, just one son, and he buried them both there. And so now, not only is he set apart from the normal liturgy, the normal worship of the church, now he's all by himself. By the way, his, his baseline text, his foundational text that gave him the courage to go do that and gave him the courage to stay was all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples. I am with you always. Behold, I am with you always. So that's what he continued to tell himself. Behold, I am with you always by the, the words of Christ. So he tells this story about a time when the whole island was convulsed by tribal warfare. And in their frenzy, the natives threatened to destroy both the mission station and the missionary. And do you know how cannibals destroy you? They eat you. You are lunch. So you don't get invited to the potluck lunch. You become the potluck lunch. So, Noar, a man named Noar, who is a friendly chief, he urged Dr. Patton to fly into the bush and to hide in a large chestnut tree there. So he says, there's a big tree, it'll hold you, climb up really high, and just stay quiet. So he does, climb up into it, remain until the moon rises, and he did so. And concealed in the leafy shelter, Dr. Patton, Dr. Patton saw the cannibals beating the bushes in their eager search for himself. They are underneath this man looking for him so that they could eat. And he says, quote, The hours that I spent in that chestnut tree still live before me. I heard the frequent discharge of muskets and the hideous yells of the savages. Yet never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me. I was alone, yet not alone. I would, listen to this, cheerfully spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence as I felt it that night. This is how we can trust the Lord with Timmy. We can trust the Lord with Reese's. We can trust the Lord with anybody else that goes out from our church that we can say, God, how are they going to sustain? How are they going to maintain without the, the normal exercises of the normal grace of God to have the word preached over them and to be encouraged and to sing to sing praises to the Father together. How are they going to survive? That's the answer. Christ is going to draw near. Mission does not mean breaking forever from the body. 
but it does mean temporarily forsaking the normal means of participation in, in Christ's body while trusting Him to supply abnormal means of fellowship with Himself and with His people. So, we have an opportunity to send Timmy and to continue to love and to support the Reese family. And so as you pray for them and consider how to serve them, please keep this in mind. Be praying these things over them, that the Lord would make good on His Word. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, never forget this. I am with you always. Pray this over our missionaries. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father God, we... We love, Lord, to look back at the snapshot of the church and to see so many of um, our current problems that would be solved if we just would turn to Christ. See unity and diversity, uh, God. You see all of these, uh, all of this divine purpose that you would that you would step in and send us on your mission, God. These are things that we want to see. And we want to measure ourselves by. Would you be this way with us? Would you make us diverse without trying to be cool about it? Would you help us, Lord, to just focus on Christ and then saddle us with all sorts of diversity that all of us would come from any race, from any culture, and we would just love Christ together? God, would you, would you grant that we would see ourselves as on, this, on the mission that you are on? that we would take great risk at that. God, that we would see ourselves as we, as, we worship, as we worship you, as we worship your Son, that we would be satisfied in Him and that satisfaction would spill over to the nations. God, would you make us mindful, help us, Lord, never, uh, never to, to forget our missionaries that have been set apart from the normal liturgy, the normal worship of the church, that are by themselves, often in very dark places. Uh, God, help us to, to pray and to act in accordance with that knowledge. To know that they need our support and need our help and need you to come to them and to comfort them. Help us, Lord. We ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Each Sunday when we take communion, I borrow a phrase from somebody that I love. When I say, come and welcome to Christ. Y'all heard me say that before every Sunday. Come, welcome to Christ. Now, perhaps I'm the only one who's, ever, uh, who's never seen until this very morning the double meaning there. You guys notice this? Come and welcome. I always take this to mean, come because you are welcome. And it totally means that. It totally means that. Come because you are welcome. But it could also mean a command, not just an invitation. Come, welcome. Like, come and offer the welcome to others that Christ offers to you. Amen. Okay? Come, offer welcome. It, welcome is yours and you can offer it. As in, come, welcome our guests to the feast. I think we need to feel both the summons and the command. Starving, truncated, emaciated people never share. You know that? They never share. I'm not saying they won't. 
I'm saying they can't share because starving people have nothing to offer. It is those who have an abundance, have more than enough, who are able to overflow towards others. This is why Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it meagerly, miserly, abundantly. Yes. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give us the type of life that would spill over to others. Living water that would well up within us and satisfy not only ourselves, but also our neighbors. Eternal life, which He told us, is to know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. That eternal satisfying life will draw others into eternity with us. But, in order to reproduce, we must first be satisfied. And so we come to the table. We come here seeking Christ who gives in Himself the type of soul satisfaction that will transform the nations. And we are totally dependent upon Him for that satisfaction. You can't muster it. So don't even try. When we come here, we come trusting that He has indeed promised to meet us right here, to sup with us right here, to satisfy us right here, in order that we might be useful to Him out there. So come to the table. Come eat and drink Christ until your soul overflows with grace and hope and love. Come so that your satisfaction would mean the delight of those who do not yet know Him who is altogether lovely. Come, and in both senses of the phrase, welcome to Christ. We pray for you. Holy Spirit, we believe Your Word. The Word that You inspired to us. We believe Your promises given to us in Christ. But we need to believe better. We need to receive better. And so You give us not just Word in our ears, but Word in our mouth broken body, the shed blood of Christ to be eaten drunk would you would you come Holy Spirit would you minister to us the blessings of Christ in order that we might be satisfied and might be useful to you in the winning of the nations we ask it in your name